0: Come. Oh, it's calm and always right When I feel your face down Lohi toward uh, past Mission, toward Agassiz and all that. Right there's, uh, I think, a Harrison pub kind of thing. You turn left and you go into the bush kind of thing. Over there, it's fantastic fishing and fantastic snowboarding. But why I love it so much is that so many times I've gone and I've seen so many eagles. Sometimes I've seen 40 eagles on the way there and back. And I'm just like, yes, this is not a wasted trip. Fantastic connection. So with this... Amazing, majestic eagle in your mind. I want to paint a picture a little bit. And imagine with me if there was a great, horrible oil spill off the shores near North Van, and the oils and the crude made its way over to Squamish area, where we know that there's a big gathering of eagles at least once a year. Thousands of eagles. One particular eagle, in its zeal to capture a, a gleaming reddish Sockeye salmon swooped too low and his wings glazed the water and quickly became heavy laden with crude oil causing his whole flight to be miscalculating. In his excitement of his catch he banked left to land on a stalwart branch of a Douglas fir but because of the burden of oil on his wings he came too close, too fast and he crashed right into that Douglas fir breaking a wing and then crashing to the ground. What are we to do with this haphazard and injured eagle I have four suggestions. Number one, we should probably ignore the eagle and let the chips fall where they may. Don't get involved. stupid eagle. Number two, perhaps we should do the humane thing and put him out of his misery, beat him to a quick death. Number three <laughs> Number three, <laughs> number, three <laughs> number three, maybe we should scoop him up. And put him in a cage back at home. And then maybe even bandage up his wound, but for his own safety and for the reputation of the other majestic eagles in the area, we should probably keep him tethered at home and leave him in a cage. Or number four, do we dare spend time on him? Do we dare spend money and nurse the poor thing back to health and then take yet another chance on sending him back out to fish? to represent the great flock or the great convocation of eagles? Do we take that chance? Sometimes it's hard to know how to deal with failure. When a vice president of IBM came up with an idea to set up a separate division, he was actually given permission by the CEO, Thomas Watson. So when he put the plan into motion, he promptly lost $10 million dollars he came in and he actually handed Watson a resignation and when Watson said why, what's going on? He says because this thing was such a miserable failure. Watson responded you are not resigning just after I spent 10 million dollars on your education. (laughs) Often what holds us back from reaching our potential in Jesus is the misunderstanding of forgiveness and restoration. Receiving that and then also being part of that in other people's lives. So receiving forgiveness and restoration, and then also another misunderstanding on how to appropriate that to others, how to be a beacon of light, helping them understand the forgiveness of Christ, and also how to restore them when they have fallen like the great eagle that swooped too low and crashed into a tree. So before we jump into Galatians chapter six, let me pray with you. Lord, I thank you for this subject. It's a subject that uh, we may not think about a ton, but we've all bumped into it because we've all bumped into our own rebellious behavior or we've bumped into people that make us feel real awkward uh, because they've either left their faith, left the church, or they have a really stinging attitude toward it and we don't know how to deal with it. So help us. To glean a bit more wisdom and discernment this morning. That we would be even better at restoring folks. Thank you Lord. Amen. Galatians chapter 6 starting at verse 1. We're going to be bouncing around the Bible a bit today. But Galatians chapter 6 is where we're going to set up camp. Brothers, brothers and sisters. If someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him gently. So here it's assuming or presuming that you are spiritual, that you are actually moving toward Christ in a deeper way. So you, the person that is actually moving toward Christ, it's up to you to restore this person gently who has been caught in sin. But watch out, watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens... And in this way, you'll be able to fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he's actually nothing, he deceives himself. So each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. So just within the first few verses, we see that you're supposed to carry each other's loads. But then at the end of these last verses, verse 5, it says, but be careful because you got to carry your own load. So right there, it's kind of showing us that we're responsible, but it's also uh, almost admonishing us if you're one of those people that is constantly not taking responsibility for your own growth and you're always grabbing other people to help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. You also got to pay attention here and say you are responsible for your load in this. Verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word of God must uh, share all good things with his instructor. Don't be deceived, because God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is interesting, because it's your human nature and mine to sow all sorts of wild oats. I'm doing this, Steve does this, Steve does this. All of a sudden, something goes wrong, and I'm going, God! But hold the bus... You're the one that's been sowing the seed, but when it doesn't work out for you, you shake your fist at God. So right here, it's telling us, wait a second, if you're sowing that kind of seed, why are you surprised when harvest time comes and things are a mess? Or when you're sowing seeds to the spirit, harvest time comes and there's a spiritual harvest. It's a great principle, very practical one. Let us not become weary In doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." So this is some juicy stuff in this passage for us this morning, and I want to leave you with a bit of an acrostic, and this is it. Here's the deal. What do you do when you're restoring people? Here's the deal, D-E-A-L. Number one, D is our desire or our goal is to restore an individual. Our desire needs to be to restore an individual. I think we're great at forgetting that. We've got to love people back to what Christ created them for in the first place, not to teach them a lesson or to protect everybody else from someone that you think is a bit of a virus. So what I'm saying is sometimes there's this awkward place where somebody that's been maybe even worshiping with us for years, all of a sudden they go off the deep end and their life is just shambles and you're going, oh my, and you see them on the street and you might actually pass by on the other side because you have no idea what to say to that person or maybe that person makes you angry. Or maybe that person has made it so awkward you have no idea how to act with them. I don't know. I know even for a family member of mine, she went through a hard marriage and ended up in divorce. People around her didn't know how to respond and they would actually cross uh, the street so that they didn't have to deal with looking her in the eye. It was so sad. So our desire... From Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, our desire, our goal is to restore an individual. Are you hearing me? It's not to teach them a lesson. Amen. Okay? Because that's our human nature. Uh, believe me, there's folks in my life too that I really want to teach a lesson. But it's just like, is that our responsibility? Or is it telling us right here? No, no, no. Your heart the intention of your heart, even sometimes when you're doing tough love stuff and all that, it's important that your overarching theme, desire is to restore, not to shove them away, not to be embarrassed about them, not to, plant, to protect everybody else. It is to restore them. That's the D. The E is to evaluate. We need to evaluate and take inventory in our own lives lest we fall into the same temptation. Verse 3, 4, 5. It's really important that we evaluate because you might be tempted in the same area that you're trying to restore somebody else in. So that leads us to A, our approach. We need to watch our approach to make sure that we do not become condescending or hypocritical or judging and all that stuff. We, our desire is to restore them. So our approach needs to be gentle and we need to know what we're going. It needs to be a spiritual approach in order to restore somebody back to Jesus Christ. And lastly, the L is from our, last, um, from our last verse that we read today is to look for opportunities. God wants to use you to love others back to the kingdom or to look for opportunities to love on others, to bring them back to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I look at this and I love it because that last verse here um, it says, uh, therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to others, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let's look for those opportunities. Folks, you know how many times I've heard this or I've even embarrassingly done it? Some of you might be having a rough time, you know? I might go to Ron and Ron might spill his beans and saying times are really tough and desperate or in despair. And I'll say, wow, Ron, I'm so sorry. Well, here's my phone number. Give me a call if, if I can help folks, when somebody's in despair or desperate or in depression, they are not going to pick up the phone and call you. That is your responsibility. And I know this is tough but I even know in mentoring situations where the protege is is rebelling or misbehaving or whatever, doing something crazy, I think as mentors, as the mature ones, as those that are spiritual, you pursue and look for opportunities because you want to win them back to walking in this path that Christ has created for them. That's your desire. Not to teach them a lesson or further alienate them from what God has for them, but to bring them on back, to love on them. Looking... For opportunities, So a great biblical example, I think, of this deal, of our desire, our evaluation, our approach and look, is found in Luke chapter 22. Luke ch- chapter 22, here we go, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, and Jesus and the apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, Jesus did, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover, or have communion with them, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. So here's the story of Judas, right? And verse 24, really humanly, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. This is the, these are the folks that are closest, spending the most time with Jesus. Isn't that hilarious? So they're connected to Jesus. They're the hand-picked disciples. You know, so I think I'm going to be greater than you probably and I'll probably sit closer to Jesus in the, you know, like I'm just like, wow, this is a conversation. But I love it because it's backing up what Galatians says and Galatians is talking about, do not compare yourselves to one another. That's what these guys are doing. What? So we can compare ourselves by even saying, well, I'm better or I give more money than that person or at least I'm not as messed up as that person. That's not the point, is it? It's not the point. Jesus said to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table or is it not the one who's at the table but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. In verse 31, he turns and he says, Simon, Peter, Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So you're going sift as wheat. It's one of those Bible words that you're going, what in the world? It's like in, uh, when Peter walks on the water and says the waves were buffeting against him. We don't know what that means. But us farmers, we know what sift means. That's right. Sifting is one of those words when you're in harvest and back and forth, back and forth, you're vibrating and jiggling and, and really shaking the wheat so that it separates the chaff from what you want the grain, so there's lots going on for that poor little grain until finally it separates and you get the garbage separated from the good stuff. And here, what did Jesus say to Simon Peter? He says, "Simon, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat." Do you remember another Old Testament example of this? Job. That's right. Job. Satan came to to God and says. I want to crack at Job. He only he only honors you because you give him all this cool stuff. Nope, 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 nope. So here it's the same thing, same principle, is he came to uh, and, uh, and uh, said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now let's think about that for a while. That's actually what the devil wants for you. The devil wants to sift you. Okay, he wants to give you a good shaking so that There's a few things that happen. You're separated from each other. He wants to grab you and shake you, shake you, shake you. And in your bitterness or your loneliness or somebody hurt your feelings on Sunday and he wants to shake, shake, shake. And then you'll just pull back and you won't be attending church all that much anymore. And you'll just be alone. He wants to get you alone. Think about that principle. That's even what a lion does when it comes to a herd of deer. Wants to just get one. I don't need them all, just one. One at a time. Same thing that the devil's into, one at a time. He's after you in your bitterness. He's after it when you're feeling sorry for yourself. He's after it when you're dealing with anger. When you feel like your marriage is a mess or your kid's gone awry, I don't know. But the fact is he wants to sift you. The devil has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your life. Satan, the enemy of God, is asking to sift Job. He's asking to sift Peter. And I think he's also into sifting us. He wants to show power over us. He wants the power over each and every one of us. So by sifting, he wants to shake things up so much so that he separates the chaff from the wheat. He wants to separate Christians from each other. He's the author and prince of dissension, of backbiting. He's the author of quarrels among us. He wants to separate you from the flock by feeling alone, feeling sorry for yourself, making you think that everybody's against you, and when you walk out this morning, we're probably talking about you. It's not true, by the way. But nonetheless, he plays mind games like that. You know how many folks actually feel that way? I've probably felt that way a a time or two myself. Satan wants to sift you. He wants to get you away from us. He wants you to get away from God. He wants to be in your own head thinking and making up stories that you'll believe that are putting others down and that you're no good for this whole congregation. He's into sifting you. He wants to have power over you. He wants to have power over your relationships by sifting you from others. And he also wants to sift you. He wants you to doubt yourself. He wants you to go, I can't be forgiven or I'm not hanging out with them. They talk about me. He wants you to pull back from God. He wants you to live with an anxious struggle. He wants you to live with worry and doubt. He wants you to be bitter. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to walk away from the church. That's his plan. Why? Why? Because when you're consumed with selfishness, when you're consumed with powerful emotions of hurt, powerful emotions of bitterness, powerful emotions of anger, powerful emotions, period, and hey, emotions are real, I'm not dissing that, but when you're consumed by that, you're pretty much rendered useless in the kingdom of God. You're pretty much rendered an eagle that's trapped in a cage or an eagle that we got to put out of its misery or whatever. An eagle that's tethered and it's great because the devil's going great. They're, they're useless. He might even have a little bit of a faith left, but he's not sharing it with anybody. I shut him up. The devil wants an injured, angry, bitter Christian, a quiet Christian. Keep it to yourself. That's what he wants. So Hebrews 6 Says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Don't you think that sometimes the good old devil uses a sword when it comes to your emotions? That he's actually going for your mind? that he's going for your heart, that he's going, for, even using through the actions of other people, sitting in this room that might have hurt your feelings. Yeah. he won't, Whatever he can use to sift you, he'll go for it. But guys, how many times, from Hebrews here, how many times have we looked at the per, per, per person lying beside us and right in bed there, our mate, and we treat them like they're the devil? Or we treat them like, like they're at fault at all this thing and we don't realize our struggle is not against flesh and blood it's so easy to look at your kid who's rebelling and be angry with that kid maybe we should be instead of angry we should be angry with the devil fighting for our kid's soul So verse 13 says, which backs up Galatians, put on the full armor of God, I think for a couple of reasons, so that you're not used as a weapon to hurt other Christians. Secondly, so that you don't take those darts when another Christian, because sometimes we, we have huge expectations of Christians that they're never going to hurt us and all that stuff. Come on, you guys, we're, we're a bunch of <laughs> redeemed people, but we're still messed up. So we hurt each other's feelings and we do stupid things. Put on the full armor of God so that all of a sudden, you know, Helen, in your gracious spirit, you might hurt my feelings, but I gotta be a big boy and go, I know her, she does not mean to hurt me or whatever, and I can chat with her about it. Or, to, in my times of meditation, put on the full armor of God because I sure don't wanna be used of the devil to help sift other Christians. Going back to Luke, it says, um, after he said, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you. Verse 32, Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, you guys, do you hear this language that he's using? I prayed that you will, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Jesus knows that Simon's gonna turn his back. Look at that language there. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. (laughs) And uh, Peter, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison to death. And Jesus answered, you know, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. I'm guessing Peter probably still doesn't eat chicken. But here... The, the rooster crows and here the background of it is jesus is being crucified jesus is being hurt jesus is being tortured he's being led away without a decent trial and we see peter lurking in the shadows and people going hey i know you aren't you with him no don't know the guy we see that three times to finally one of the gospels says i don't know him and he swears by heaven or by earth i tell you i don't know him and then all of a sudden there's this crowing of a rooster and one of the gospels even says there's an eye contact between him and Jesus can you imagine what Peter felt like do you think Peter wanted to go to church that day rooster crows he sees the eyes of Jesus do you think that you know what I really need to go to church today and be encouraged by the other Christians I almost guarantee you That there's no chance he would have darkened the church door that day because of his human nature. That kind of stuff, the devil wants to go, oh boy, you screwed up. Wow. If the other Christians in that church find out, wow. So you skip church that day, and the sifting begins. How did Peter feel? Obviously, you know that that Jesus went on to be crucified and Peter seemed to lose the wind out of his sails. His friend, his teacher, his mentor, his Messiah was dead. But scripture goes on because we know that he rose from the grave. So afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee the, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together I'm going out to fish Simon Peter told them see it's biblical to go fishing when you're a bit bummed there you go I'm going out to fish Simon Peter told them and they said well we're going with you so they went out and got in the boat but that night they caught nothing and early in the morning Jesus stood in on the shore, but the disciples did not reco- or realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Hey, friends, haven't you caught any fish? I, I'm not sure what Jesus is doing here, but that's almost like a, a cardinal rule being broken. Like, if you see that there's guys are bummed and they got no fish, why would you draw attention to that? You know, fishermen, eh. if they have a bunch of fish, then the fishermen, you don't even have to say anything. They're pretty good at just, <laughs> you know, check out my fish. But here, Jesus makes it all the more awkward. Friends, haven't you caught any fish? No. They answered. And then he sticks it to him. He says, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Okay, I want you to picture that. Here, I am fishing, having no luck, out of the left side of my boat. You come up in your boat, catching. No, I didn't. You? Yeah, oh yeah sure. We got six in the boat. Now, my mind's going... What are they using for bait? What are they using for this? What are they? What am I doing wrong? And then you just give the smart answer. Maybe you should try the other side of the boat. What? Like, just think about the reasoning that Jesus gives you. It's just awesome. So I have to bring up my lines, bring up my downriggers. Two steps this way. It's, you know, boats aren't that big. <laughs> and then do it. It's it's just an awesome story. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they did it. They actually did it. And remember, they had not yet realized that this was Jesus. This is a pretty cool story. When they did it, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it, it's the Lord. He wrapped up his outer garment around him because he had just taken it off. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing this huge net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire uh, of burning coals and there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, come on, bring some of that fish you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. Right there, we see fishermen already. Large fish, that's right. 153 of them, in fact. But even with so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, well, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. These guys came from a horrible fishing situation. They're all bummed. All of a sudden their nets are breaking. And what does Jesus do? He invites them to a meal. It's kind of like us today, don't you think? Sometimes the easiest way to connect with people or chat with people or even to say something that might be a little bit rough, why don't we eat together? It worked back then. It still works today. Jesus says, come on, you guys. Got a fire going. Got some bread. And bring some of that fish. So look at that. He's connecting with all of them. He's connecting, and there's something else percolating here. Because what happens after that, after they're eating, the tummies are feeling good, and actually, who was it that jumped out of the boat? Peter. So this is pretty cool. And he's, uh, they're enjoying this meal. And when they finally finish eating, Jesus looks over, and he sees Simon, Peter. He says, hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What's he talking about? Is he talking about the yummy, yummy fish and the great bread that they just part? Have you ever had fish over a fire outside? It's yummy. (laughs) If it has not even been frozen yet, it's to die for, right? So, hey, maybe it's, do you love me more than just having a full belly? Or maybe he's saying, do you love me more than your buddies your fishing buddies whatever he might be talking about he says do you love me more than these and he says yes Lord you know that I love you Jesus said feed my lambs verse 16 again Jesus said Simon son of John do you love me he answered yes Lord you know that I love you take care of my sheep third time he said to him Simon son of John do you love me and Peter was hurt there you go somebody's hurt in the church he was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time do you love me and he said Lord you know all things you know that I love you it's interesting that it, three times he denied him and three times Jesus reinstated him and it's interesting that he, Jesus even connected with him and they ate together and they had an easy going meal it was fantastic but then he's, and, "But there was this bull in the china shop. There was this elephant in the room. And I don't know if Peter was like, oh, I hope he doesn't bring it up. I hope he forgets. I hope, I hope, I hope. I don't know. But after having this connection, Jesus turns, hey, Simon. It wasn't, now Simon, guys, gather around. Simon. Hey, Simon, you know, like you can see that it wasn't this condescending, bitter, angry connection here. The way that Jesus went about it was just fabulous. We can learn from this. He's at the fire and Jesus asks him about agape love. Most of you know that there's different kinds of love in in the Greek language. Agape love we've often said is a God love and that's mostly true. Um, There's a phileo love, a connection of humans, friendship. There's eros, which is more of the um, erotic love or whatever between a, a a couple when they're married and Jesus asks about agape love an all-giving uncaused unselfish love so this huge spiritual love he asks them about agape love and Peter answers with phileo love which is usually reciprocal so me and Henry me and Henny, Henry me and Henny have a, a phileo kind of love Because she would do stuff for me and I would absolutely do stuff for her. So we have this friendship, right? That's the phileo love. But what's also interesting is reciprocal, it's friendly affection, but with phileo also comes a palpable or a tangible kind of act. So I think we can sometimes see Uh, agape which is a God love but there's also instances in scriptures where it says men agape darkness so we got to change our definition here a little bit so he's talking about love as in do you spiritually love me hugely uncaused unselfish love and Peter answers with phileo friendship love so this is kind of how it goes Um, Jesus answered Uh, asked him do you agape me And, and Peter replied I phileo you Jesus asked do you agape me and Peter says I phileo you Jesus asked do you phileo me and Peter replied I phileo you so it seems to me that if it's true that phileo has yes this connection but also has a palpable or a tangibility with it then it's not just enough to say that we love one another and stay seated. It's a get off your seat and pursue one another. Remember, we're going back to the deal. Our desire needs to be to restore one another. We can't just sit in our pew, go, pew thinking like, oh, can believe what she did, or I wish they'd come back, or here's my number, call me when you're ready to come back to the Lord. Come on. That's not going to happen. Our job, our calling is to pursue one another. And it is hard. I've been a part of that stuff where you're you're going for a person and you really want to love them on back, but they don't return your phone calls or they're rude or they're big jerks. That's hard. That's like, feels like you're throwing pearls to swine. But you know what? There's times where we just got to stick your neck out and realize that they're going through something and your job is to love them on back to Jesus. That's your desire. And watch out because you might be tempted by the same thing or you might be in that situation some other time. So I hope you've dealt nicely with those people that need restoring because you might be, need to be restored one day. You love me," he says. "Feed my sheep. Show me love on people. Restore them. Restore them. Our desire, our goal, is to restore an individual. We got to evaluate and take inventory of our own lives, and our approach when we restore people: approach of love, seasoned with grace, with the goal of bringing them back, not burning a bridge and to pursue these individuals looking for opportunities to connect with people again. Jesus really says, Peter, do you love me? Don't compare yourselves because in one of the Gospels, he's, well, what about him? What about him? Do you love me? And we saw this in Luke. We saw this in Galatians. He's saying, don't worry about everybody else here. Don't compare it, well, I'm better at connecting with people and bringing them back than Carrie. You know, I, I've brought three back to the Lord. I don't know about Carrie. It's not about that. Or at least I'm connected a bit more with God than it seems Monica is. Like, oh, I'm tired. It's not about that. And he warns us over and over in Scripture, don't compare yourselves by each other. It's ridiculous. Jesus replied, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. And I love it. He restores him, and not only by word, but he restores them. Later on, he says, upon this rock, upon this petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter ended up being uh, forced to be dealt with when it came to church planting and taking care of Christ's church. Seems to me Jesus had restoration in mind right from the beginning and he still has that for people today that might have hurt you for people today that have actually betrayed you for people today that have walked out and been almost embarrassing for the things of Christ or or the church for people that have actually maybe even shook their fist and told you off they want nothing to do with you but are you looking for opportunity to love them back this is hard and it tells us right in Galatians 6, those who are spiritual. So guess what? Sometimes I don't feel too spiritual because I get angry and I get bitter and I get hurt too. But those are real emotions and bring those to Christ and be able to hopefully reach out and still look for those opportunities to, to, to touch those people that have walked away or have hurt your feelings. So, very simply, going back to deal looking back at, those, at the desire to restore everybody, to evaluate yourself, watch out with your approach and look for those opportunities. I'm gonna ask you, what is the deal with you? What's the deal with you? Today, Jesus wants to forgive your sins. He wants you to make things, he wants to make things right with you. He's made that possible by what Christ has done. He wants to restore you. He wants you to get back on track. He has a plan for you. He wants you to get back on that plan. And lastly, God is crazy about his kids. Think about that. If you have kids, you know what this feels like. I'm crazy about my kids, but that can't even come close to the craziness that Christ has for his children. He loves his children. So I ask you this, point blank. Are you involved in restoring others So are you involved in God's plan of restoring others? Or or are you actually being used of the devil to drag God's kids further away from him? Are you being used of God to restore people to fellowship, bring them back and love on them? Or are you actually being used of the devil to drag people away by, I told you so, I can't believe you and burn that bridge. Which camp are you into today? Heavenly Father, I would ask that each one of us would evaluate this and uh, I know even for my own life there's folks that have really hurt me or there's times where I feel justified in, in being angry with someone. But Lord, you have provided an incredible Opportunity for us to be forgiven and to get our lives on track and to be restored into fellowship with God Almighty. And boy, I know I've hurt you a bunch of times. And I've betrayed you. I've gone off the path. I've rebelled. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray for my friends in here that if there is uh, a spirit of rebellion, if somebody is walking away from you this morning, I pray that today they would stop in their tracks and realize that you're crazy about them and that we, the rest of us in here, want to be a part of that restoring plan. If today somebody is sitting in here and they're kind of stubborn because somebody has hurt them and they're feeling sorry for themselves or they're angry or bitter, I pray that they can give that to you today and the journey this week would be toward moving out to restore a wayward child of the Most High King. Lord, all of us need to be restored. All of us are in a restoring relationship with you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that if some of us are not in that relationship yet, that today is the day that we would give our lives to you. Or, Lord, if we've been holding back from pursuing an opportunity to connect with somebody that has walked away from you. Lord, bring that... Bring that um, bring that name to mind right now to our hearts and may we be part of the plan to bring a child back to you one of God's kids back to you thank you thank you for restoring us in Christ's name we pray